Welcome to episode 171 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Jennifer Volbrush. She served in the Marine Corps and decided to serve after September 11th. She went from not knowing about the military to deciding she had to join. She was only 16, but her path was set to join the Marines, and she began to prepare. A month before she turned 18, her parents finally gave in and signed the forms to allow her to enlist into the Marines. She spent five years in the Marine Corps, and we talked about how her time in the military continued to impact her life and what she's doing today. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp and USA Girl Scouts Overseas for supporting this week's episode of Women of the Military podcast. USA Girl Scouts Overseas Virtual Troop is a great way for girls to learn new skills, meet girls from all over the world, and have fun no matter where they are or where they move. Adults can also volunteer with Girl Scouts, and it is such a great way for adults to continue to learn and meet new friends. Volunteering is easy and can be done by just giving seconds, minutes, or hours each week to help support Girl Scouts. USA Girl Scouts Overseas has many fun activities and ways to stay engaged for girls K-12 and for their adult lifetime members. You can learn more about joining or volunteering with USA Girl Scouts Overseas by heading to their website, usagso.org. That's usagso.org. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. We met virtually for the Women Veteran Alliance Small Business Award. We were both nominated and then Jennifer won. And then we got to meet in person last year at the conference. So I'm excited to do this interview because I feel like I know you really well, even though I guess I kind of barely know you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I think mine, I joined the Marines in 2003. I'm sure it was 9-11. So I remember, like, I remember I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And I remember mostly the aftermath and watching TV. And there was like a ticker, like America's at war in, you know, three hours and like watching the countdown. And I was watching those convoys go in and I knew nothing about the military at that time. So I was fascinated. Like, what are these people doing? This is awesome. I need to be there. Like if they need someone to kill a bad guy, they should call me. And I was just like fired up at that point. And I I must have been 16 years old. I went to the library and I checked out a book called Marine Sniper. And it was by Gunny Hathcock. And he's like this famous um, Marine Corps Vietnam scout sniper. And I read the book and I was like, that's me. Like I need to be, can I get into a sniper program? I was trying to figure out, you know, what can I do? So I went down to the recruiter's office. I was already dead set. I was joining the Marines and I just needed a date. <laughs> and I'm 16 at the time. So they're like, okay, let's wait till you're 18. You know, you start preparing. And so I did, I started to prepare. So I kind of just knew that was my path. 
I also was really focused on education. I wanted to get my education out of it. And I I didn't think at that time that I wanted to do a career. I was right. I didn't want to do a career. Just one enlistment, but I just really wanted to be part of the military, part of something that was way bigger than me. So you were a sophomore, junior when September 11th happened? Yeah, I graduated. Let's see, I graduated high school in 03. So I was whatever that is. I was a sophomore. So it was like September 11th happened and it kind of was like, oh, the military. And then you were like, I have to do this. Yes. And it wasn't just like, I want to do this. It was, I have to do this. Like, I have to be part of it. I was like obsessed with it. And why did you pick the Marine Corps over the other branches? You know, honestly, I did very little research on the other branches. I knew they existed. But after reading Gunny Hathcock's book, I just didn't, I couldn't picture myself doing anything else. So it was always a, a question of, you know, I, I had this fear of regret. And I didn't want to join another service and then regret not joining the Marines. Like it was just too strong of a pull. Like I know you pretty well and I'm not surprised you ended up in the Marine Corps. So in that window of time from like your sophomore year to your senior year, what sort of things did the recruiters do to help prepare you for the Marine Corps? So I had a really long runway, right? I I had almost two years that I had made my decision before I was going to even enlist and ship out. So I did a ton of things to prepare. I did a lot of um, PT exercise. We would we would PT every Saturday morning. We would go for long runs and go hiking. We shot rifles. I had never shot a rifle before, um, so they uh, we kind of went over that. And then also, um, just because I was there for so long, I ended up tutoring some people to pass the ASVAB. Um, I had the keys to the recruiter's office, and I would go. I would pick these kids up from high school, and we would go down there. And I would tutor them so they could pass the ASVAB. And my recruiter had told me, if you can get five guys to pass the ASVAB, I'll sign so you can go in as an E2. So I went in with a promotion as an E2 because I did that. So I had, I, and I also, I guess on top of that, I watched every military movie. I read every book that I could. I memorized all my general orders. So I just went in fully prepared. Yeah, as much as I could have. Right. Can't be all the way prepared. Yeah. So what career field did you end up picking? So I chose, it was a five-year enlistment, and I was a helicopter crew chief and door gunner on CH-46 helicopters. And is that the career field that you wanted the most? Yes. And I mean, I remember looking over the options. I had scored you know, pretty high on the ASVAB. I don't remember what I got now, but I could choose any field that was open to females. And that was a thing at the time is that Scout Sniper was not open to females. So I couldn't choose that path. I couldn't choose infantry. I didn't want to be behind a desk. I didn't want to be in an office. I wanted to be getting my hands dirty. And so I chose aviation and crew chief because I thought that would give me the most uh, adventure and excitement. Do you think if you enlisted in the Marine Corps today with all jobs open to women that you would have tried to go the sniper route? Uh, Absolutely. Like if I wasn't too old right now (laughs) and with young children, that would still just be the ultimate for me. I think it's interesting because I don't think we talk enough about how limited women were in branches like some women wanted to join and those jobs were like for me I wanted to be a civil engineer and there was no problem and I never really thought about anything else because that's what I wanted to do but 
so many women for so long have wanted to do things that they were told no just because of their gender. And it's exciting to see how it's changed. I remember too, I, my, my mom, when I was signing up, my mom was a little bit nervous about me joining. And so she didn't want to sign when I was underage. And then finally, I guess as a gift, uh, my parents decided to sign the month before my 18th birthday. Um, but my mom went down there to the recruiter's office and my recruiter stood there and looked her in the eye and he said, women don't go to combat. And I think like that was some kind of like antiquated thing from the 90s or something. But in the time that I was serving from 04 to 09, we were <laughs> we were absolutely outside the wire. And so he, you know, he looked my mom in the eye and he said, women don't go to combat. And uh, the next time I saw him after I had shipped out, the next time I saw my recruiter was in Iraq. And I think he was like, you know, pale as a ghost. He was like, oh my God, I lied to her mother. <laughs> yeah, but I think that there was like a big mind shift that needed to take place. That's like combat exclusion. Women weren't allowed to be in combat, but then women were in combat, but no one was talking about it. So like the recruiter wasn't deploying because he was recruiting people. So it was easy for him to be like, Women don't go to combat. I already know that. That's what I've been taught. And then war changed in such a way that that wasn't the case. And I was taught that when I joined in 2007, women don't go to combat. And I was like, oh, good. I don't want to go to combat. And then what do I do? I go to combat. Yeah, exactly. And even after I got out and when they were letting women into the recon and all those things, the headline was women are now allowed in combat. And I remember, you know, I, I think I had talked to some of the my friends that I had served with. And I was like, what do you mean women can now go to combat? What do you what did we do exactly? It must be some kind of marketing narrative. Well, I mean, it's all about the headlines and grabbing the attention. And I don't think the military really wanted to explain, oh, no, women have been in combat for a long time. They're like, oh, yeah, we're starting this new thing. And it's like, no, you're not. And it really was a disservice to all the women who did do the things. I felt that same tension because when they announced combat exclusion, I was still active duty. And someone came up to me and asked me if I was going to get out of the military because now women could be in combat. And I was like, well, I already got shot at, so I don't see how anything's changing. And the look on their face was like, what? And that was on base. Someone asked me, it was a civilian, but that was the first thing that she asked me when she found out about combat exclusion. Are you going to get out now that women can be in combat? There already have been. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about boot camp. When you went, was it still segregated males and females or were you guys mixed? It was segregated. So what was that experience like? Yeah. So, I mean, boot camp, like I said, I prepared as much as I thought I could. I was in great physical condition, but there's really nothing that can prepare you for that kind of psychological breakdown <laughs> that you experience. And the Marine Corps, it's very, you know, they strip you down to nothing. You you are not a person. You're not an individual. You are, you speak about yourself in the third person. So this recruit, you know, needs to tie this recruit shoe or, you know, whatever, like you can't, you're not even a person. And so nothing could prepare you for that. It was very difficult. I remember just being in shock, like the first couple of days, you're sleep deprived, food deprived, and you're just like, where am I and what's going on? I also remember even being in great physical shape. I remember it being very difficult. So like holding a rifle and the rifle is what, seven pounds and we're marching around and you have to hold it like up, like your arms are flexed for a long time. And I remember thinking my arms are going to fall off. <laughs> Because this thing is heavy and I'm not used to just holding it for, you know, like an hour at a time. 
And the thought that went through my mind at the time, it was never like, I never wanted to quit. My thought was, well, I guess they're just going to have to pick my arms up off the, off the floor. Like I was just kind of like, whatever, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to go down fighting. And so that was kind of the attitude that I went through boot camp with. Yeah. So quitting wasn't an option. It was more like, well, I guess I just won't have arms anymore. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it was challenging, but you felt like you were as prepared as you could be. And then what was it like to graduate from basic training and go from being a recruit to being a real person again? (laughs) So yeah, that was interesting when I did like my research about being in the Marines. I knew I knew that I chose a career, right? But all of my preparation was for boot camp. So, you know, graduating boot camp, first of all, I mean, there was nothing I was more proud of at the time. And even to this day, you know, one of my proudest moments, my family, I'm from California and I went to boot camp in South Carolina. So my whole family came out, my siblings, um, my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband now, he came out and we all celebrated and everything. And it was, it was so great. And then when I, you know, kind of figured out, okay, just being in the Marine Corps is not just boot camp. Now I have to learn my job and then I have to go do my job. That was a little bit of a shock, like, you know, kind of like what's next and oh shoot, I'm stuck here for the next couple of years. And so the reality set in, but I felt like I adjusted well. I was, I've always been very studious. And so I just studied what my job was going to be. I studied the helicopter and just made sure I felt comfortable. And I also just really tried to bond with my classmates and at that point, after boot camp is when you start to mix uh, male and female. So, of course, I was the only female in my class. But to this day, I keep in contact with uh, a lot of the guys that I went to school with. So it was good. So that's an interesting thing to think about. You went from a platoon of all women, and because you guys were segregated. It's not that way anymore. Boot camp is now desegregated or male and females mixed together. I don't know what that is. <laughs> So it was all women to you being the only woman. So was that a hard adjustment or was that like a natural shift? For me, I think it was natural. And I was, you know, settling into my identity as a Marine, right? Like I'm a Marine and we're all Marines. And I never really thought like, I'm an only, I'm the only woman or I'm the only whatever. I was just like, okay, we're all Marines and we're all new at this. We're all learning. I had my strengths and I had my weaknesses. And, you know, I just, I tried to work to my strengths, which was the books. The books were my strength. And then I also had, I'm kind of small and five foot two. And at the time I was like 110 pounds. So I was tiny and being an aircraft mechanic or working on a helicopter, that can be an advantage sometimes. So, um, you know, getting into small spaces or, you know, having the dexterity with your little fingertips. Um, So I used those to my advantage to just really prove myself and prove that I belong there. Yeah. Did you feel any added pressure being a woman or did you see like we're all Marines and so I work just as hard as my male counterparts to be here? I did. I felt like like that. I felt like I fit in and I felt like just like the, the guys, I had to prove myself you know, and I had to pull my own weight. And I was always very conscious of that. Like, I'm not going to ask for help carrying my 50 cal. It's 80 pounds. It weighs almost as much as me, but I'm going to carry this thing out there. And um, I remember my first gun flight, I couldn't rack the 50 cal back and I was mortified. I was beyond embarrassed. And so I failed that flight. 
you can't have somebody else rack your 50 cal for you. And so I went to the armory afterwards and I just racked the 50 cal like hundreds of times until I had it right, until I could do it without failure. And um, after that, I never had a problem again, but I always was very conscious that I have to do this myself. Yeah. It sounds like uh, it required a lot of physical strength and a lot of hard work. So it was like a combination of physical and the mental put together. You talked about being deployed and that's when you saw your recruiter again. So did you only deploy to Iraq or did you deploy more than once? I only deployed to Iraq in 2005 through 2006. For a year? For seven months. So what was that experience like? So it was crazy. We were stationed at um, a small camp called Altakadam which was right in between Ramadi and Fallujah. And in 2005, 2006, Ramadi was nuts. It was crazy. Fallujah was crazy. And so every day we were flying casualty evacuations. We were doing resupplies. We were doing our transports at night. And so it was crazy. And I think that the, uh, the tempo of the deployment for me made it go by really fast. When you're in flight status, you have these crew days. And what that means is that you they have to let you sleep for eight hours <laughs> so that you can fly the next day. And so, you know, whatever 24 minus eight is, 16, I'm a Marine, so I don't do math. Uh, but so 16 hours was your work day, right? And then even on top of that, you know, you would, if I was flying at 9am, you know, I'd have to be in the briefing room at 6am to get the brief, do our, you know, do our check flights and everything like that. So there was just a lot of work and we were flying a ton of hours and a ton of missions. So the deployment, I felt like went by really fast. I felt like we did a lot of really great work doing casualty evacuations. You pick up people who are wounded and it was anybody, military, civilian, even enemy combatants, if they were wounded and take them to a hospital. And so that was really cool. I was, uh, we had two corpsmen with us and then um, the crew chief and an observer and then the pilots. It was just so rewarding, you know, picking these people up and knowing that they were going to live because we picked them up and we would pick them up at the point of injury. So on the side of a road, in the middle of a firefight, and then take them to the closest level of care. So it was also very rewarding. So you were the helicopters that like a 9-9 medevac call. And a corpsman, if you're listening, is Navy corpsmen are medics. Correct. Yeah. So we had a Navy unit that was attached to us and they, you know, we'd have two medics on each flight. They would treat the patients, the crew chief and the observer. We would, um, we were the eyes and ears behind the pilot. So we'd tell them what's going on with our passengers. We would also, you know, be in charge of the, you know, the outside the aircraft because we're gunners also. And so keeping track of um, what's out, what's going on outside and then the pilots are flying. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of responsibility and not, the, like you said, the combat exclusion. People thought women weren't in combat, but you guys face danger, like especially flying into casualty situation because those happen and that doesn't mean that the conflict is over. So were you ever in a situation where it was like really close call or scary or just what was that experience like? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I remember... You know, you go through a lot of training. It took me, I think, a year of training before, or I think it was a year and a half of training before I deployed. And so you learn as much as you can. But I remember my first mission and it was a casualty evacuation. And I remember getting in the aircraft and 
because it was my first flight in country, I had a senior crew chief with me. And so it was him and I was the observer. And I remember like looking at him and getting my cues from him. And he's like, you know, in a tactical stance, he's on the gun, there's radio traffic. And so I'm listening to the pilots, I'm listening to the radio, I'm listening to the nine line and where we're going. And so I'm managing like three or four different conversations in my head all at once, all while trying to keep my own uh, head on a swivel. And I remember the radio traffic was there's, you know, whatever, three casualties, there's still an active firefight going on on the other side of the bridge. We're going to take them to the to the side where they're not taking fire so you can pick them up and we're going to pop smoke and you have to find us. And so there's just a lot of chaos. And at that moment, I had like an like an oh shit moment. Like this is real. I'm in, like there is they are in a firefight and I'm going to pick somebody up in the middle of it. So we got there and we landed and they loaded up the casualties and the nine line. That's the... Um, there's nine lines, right? The information about like what the situation is, who, how many patients you have, where they're going and all that stuff. Well, it said we were getting like three passengers and all of a sudden there's like six guys come on. They're all wounded. And so there was just even more chaos. Like who are these people? Some of them are on stretchers. Some of them were able to walk, but they were all wounded. And so we pick them all up, take them to the hospital. And I remember from that point on, like just because you've experienced it. It's like, this is real, you know, there's a real combat going on out there. Um, there's real danger. And then, like I said, Ramadi was crazy at the time. So there's always these little combat outposts that needed resupplies or they needed casualty evacuations. And just knowing that there was always is very hostile going into those uh, bases. It was very important to know your surroundings. Yeah, that sounds like a crazy time and like super high ops tempo with like, I mean, all that was going on. So what was it like to come home after being on like this intense mission where you're in danger a lot and all these feelings and emotions and then coming back home? When I got home, I remember that my mom threw me a coming home party. I don't remember the party at all. Like I remember I attended it and there was a bunch of people there and we must have had food and there must have been music. One thing that I do remember is that there was just so much noise and I don't know all the interaction and I didn't really know how to act. So I was kind of like sensory overload. And I remember I was kind of overwhelmed, you know, during that time and during the party and my mom handed me the phone. She wanted me to talk to somebody who couldn't make it to the party. And I shut down. Like I, I'm already struggling here and you want me to talk to somebody else? Like I can't do all these things. And um, so I really kind of struggled being in just in a regular environment. And I, I like compensated by shutting down. So like if I was um, talking to somebody and the TV was on, I would shut it all down. I couldn't hear anything. I'd be like, hold on a second, turn the TV off. Now let's talk. Um, so I had to just really kind of like recalibrate my brain and be able to, I guess, interact on a different level, like not in the fight or flight mode, but in just regular mode. So you're saying like, you're, you were so used to being like, your senses were on high alert, like every noise, like a bomb going off, incoming or an alarm, all that stuff was like danger. And so when there was like the TV going and you're trying to talk to someone, you couldn't focus on because you had the sound of the TV and that was sending input, which your body was, is that something that I need to react to. And so that's really interesting. I read a few books where people talk about how they go out of their environment into a new environment and how 
loud it is. And it's interesting to go from a combat zone where it's loud, obviously, to the United States where it's loud, but in a different way. And like your senses have to adjust to what those sounds mean. And it takes time for your mind to not be in a combat zone. So how long do you think it took for you to adjust back to, I would say, normal? So yeah, just from post-deployment and then just back to, you know, back to still being on the flight line, but at Camp Pendleton. I don't think it took very long. I don't remember like a specific aha moment, but I, you know, the, the coming home party, I remember and that was within days of me getting back. And so I would say, you know, within... I don't know, roughly, you know, a couple of weeks, I was like, okay, you know, now I remember how, you know, what the the different protocols are for not flying in combat, you know, I'm not, my weapons aren't loaded at Camp Pendleton, or, you know, the, we're not really doing a lot of gunfights. And if we are doing a gunfight, we're usually you know, like out in the desert somewhere. So I adjusted and, and I think work really kind of kept me grounded. It was like, okay, time to get back to work. We've got an ops tempo. We have to basically keep all of our qualifications up you know, in case we need to go back. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So is there anything else? You said that you just did your one tour, and I feel like we talked about a lot of your experience, but is there anything else that happened that you wanted to bring up? After my deployment, I knew I was getting out. And so I actually spent my time going to school and I went and I got my bachelor's degree while I'm still on active duty. And I was going to night school and weekend school. So I spent, um, you know, like those last couple of years just really uh, taking advantage of that, the tuition assistance and just knowing that, you know, I had, I had served my country and I was still, I was a sergeant at the time, I was an E5. And so I was mentoring younger Marines and, you know, just kind of keeping up on my calls and really concentrating on school. So I felt like I had a really good experience between all the training, the deployment, and then having that time afterwards where we still had an ops tempo at work, but I had the ability to go to school in my free time. Yeah, that's another great benefit of the military is tuition assistance of being able to get your degree while you're on active duty. And then now you can transfer your, your GI Bill so that you can transfer it to your spouse or your children, or you can use it to further your education after you get out. Right. And that's what I did. I um, saved my GI Bill and I saved it for my MBA. And now um, it's paying for most of my doctorate. Not quite all of it. Most of it. That's good. <laughs> Are you using the post 9-11 GI Bill? So uh, yeah, I signed up on the Montgomery GI Bill. And then sometime during my enlistment, we switched over to the post 9-11. And it was a way better program, right? You get a housing allowance plus tuition and books. Um, so it was, it was a way better deal. And then at the very end of it, whatever you contributed to the Montgomery GI Bill, you got a check back at the very end. Well, I think the post 9-11, you don't pay into Okay, so the Montgomery GI Bill you pay into, and so um, after you exhaust it, they give you that money back. Yeah, I am really lucky because they changed it to the Forever GI Bill, but I'm hoping to start using it in the next few years. But it expires after 15 years unless you got out after January 1st, 2013, and I got out October of 2013, so I don't have to worry about mine expiring. It's a great benefit. Yeah. That's exciting that it's paying for most of it. And you're working on a research project with your MBA doctorate program. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'm getting my doctorate in business and I'm going to St. Mary's here in California. 
And my dissertation topic is female veteran entrepreneurs navigating masculine and feminine roles. And so it's kind of kind of a mouthful, but if you break it down, you think, you know, the, the military is a very masculine field and you can't go uh, join the military and be like, oh, I'm so nurturing and maternal and, you know, be, and I love, you know, to wear high heels. Like you can't just do that in the military. You have to adapt to the masculine environment, right? You need to assert yourself and be tough and be strong and take risks and be aggressive. So you have to adapt if you're going to be successful, right? In the military. And then you get out of the military and society, right? Is, is a little bit more soft or, you know, in my case, I came home and you know, lived with my husband and I was a wife and we didn't have children yet, but it was just a more feminine role. So transitioning between like, I don't have to be tough all the time, even at work as a civilian, I don't have to be tough and aggressive. I can actually be a woman. That was an interesting experience for me. And that's why I decided to study those different identities uh, between like masculine and feminine. Additionally, entrepreneurship is a masculine field with regard to risk-taking and kind of a, a good old boys club, if you will. And there's more and more research coming out about entrepreneurship and gender and stuff like that. And it's kind of a maybe a newer and exciting field. So I decided to go like, you know, way narrow and deep into female veteran entrepreneurs, which is a very small population, but to just really look at what their lived experiences between all those different transitions and the I guess the major contrast between those different environments. Yeah, I was thinking earlier, but then I didn't bring it up. But then I thought of it again is with the way that the military is focusing so much on women, it's almost harder, even though I think things are getting better for women. But the fact that like people focus on women, like you said, you have to adapt to survive and you do. And like some of the stuff that is happening today that women are talking about, I just didn't even think twice because I just adapted and that was like my life. But now it's not okay, which I'm not saying it was okay then, but it was just easier to not have to think about it. And now I feel like it's really challenging to figure out how to adapt to be in the military because it's still very masculine and male dominated, but also to focus more on being a woman. I feel like it's a really hard challenge that I don't think enough people are talking about. Yeah. And I guess it's unique for every woman, right? We're, so, you know, the, the point is we all fall on some kind of spectrum. So maybe some of us are more in tune with our masculine side and it comes very naturally or some fall more on the feminine side and, so, and males too, you know, men are on the same scale. They're not all crazy masculine, but just adapting to your environment, I mean, is huge. And I don't know, you know, I've read some of the headlines recently about, you know, like relaxing hair standards and things like that. And on one hand, I think I get it. I understand, you know, I understand being inclusive. But also, like, there's some kind of, like, functionality to it. Like, if I'm flying around with a ponytail, <laughs> it, that's not really functional. And so, like, you know, your hair has to be up and tucked up in a bun. Um, so just different things like that. I guess it all depends on your job duties. For sure, yeah. It's complicated because it's not just, like, a black and white thing. It's got a lot of gray areas and there's reasons for the way that the hair standards are. And then there's reasons on how we can change and make them better. And it's really interesting what you're doing for your research, and I'm excited to see when it's published. 
what your findings are. But besides getting your doctorate in business, you also own a business. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing and how you ended up on the path you're on today. Sure. Yeah. So I got out of the military, got out of the Marines in 09 and I went to work for a defense contractor and I found myself back on the flight line and managing these army airplanes. And it was just the best career transition I think I could have asked for going from being on the flight line in the Marines to being on the flight line as a civilian. It was natural. And I had some opportunities there working for the defense contractor to get my project management certificate and mentor under the project manager. And I just really fell in love with all things project management, cost and schedule and budgets and all that stuff. Just like a light bulb switched on. And I was like, this is my career. I had like that aha moment. I left the defense contractor after I had my first child and I went to work for a national lab when I had my boy. So I have two kids and I worked at a national lab doing construction project management. And it was so cool. It was just a huge learning experience and learning how to execute and manage all these different subcontractors and stuff. And I just had this other aha moment where I said, Hey, you know, I could do this. I could, I could go out on my own, start my own company and be a project manager, right. And and project manage all these uh, construction jobs and work with other national labs and work with other agencies and other companies. And so I took my time making this decision, talked it over with my husband, you know, did a lot of reflection and planning before I quit my job. But in 2019, I quit my job and started my company, Jay Fulbright Consulting. In that company, we, just like I said, we work with agencies and other companies and I'll be like an outsourced project manager, um, me and my team. And so right now there's four of us on the team. You know, it's taken off, it's growing, and it's taking me in a lot of different places and different directions that I had never imagined that I would get to explore, not only through the national labs, but with defense companies, with NASA and um, Department of Transportation. So I'm learning a lot about a lot of other industries and also learning about how to grow and scale a business and, you know, a business that is, you know, not only profitable, but something that's really important to me is that it makes an impact and, you know, is mission critical and you know, is part of the bigger picture. So that's what I'm doing now. That's awesome. I'm really excited to watch your company grow and to see your success. I'm so glad that we connected through the awards program with Women Veteran Alliance. And I really love getting to learn more about your experience in the Marine Corps. So that has been really good. I have one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? I would say, well, first of all, yeah, I would listen to this podcast and listen to the experiences of women who did it. And, you know, some of us, I know in my generation, we had uh, my grandfather or my uncle served in Vietnam, and they didn't really want to talk about it. And that was my experience. And so learning from other women and other people who are willing to tell their stories, I think is huge and it's hugely important. So I would say that joining the Marine Corps was the hands down, the best thing that I could have done for myself after high school. Such a learning and growing experience. And I, I reflect on that time fondly. I, I really I really enjoyed my time in the Marine Corps. And so if you're thinking about joining the military, I would do that. I would talk and listen to people who've done it. I would also you know research which branch you want to join and why. Think about you know what do you want to get out of it? Is it a career or an education or an experience? Do you want to travel? And then from there, you know, kind of go through those goals and decide which branch you want to join and how long you want to serve 
Um, but there's lots of resources out there. So, yeah. And if you're considering serving in the military and are looking for more resources, I have the Girl's Guide to the Military on my website. So I'll link to it in the show notes so that you can pick yours up. And thanks so much for being a guest on the show. I'm really glad we got to have this interview. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you very much. episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.